1: Good evening, and welcome to the show. We are told so relentlessly these days that we need to wean our economy off fossil fuels and replace them with renewables that sometimes we need to take a step back and ask, is that a cliff up ahead? And why do all these other countries also rushing to embrace renewables look like lemmings? Also, the transgender movement is losing the cachet at once unquestioningly, ah, unquestioningly. Good evening and welcome to the show. We are told so relentlessly these days that we need to wean our economy off fossil fuels and replace them with renewables that we sometimes need to take a step back and ask, is that a cliff up ahead? And why do all those other countries also rushing to embrace renewables look like lemmings? We'll look into that tonight. Also, the transgender movement is losing the cachet it once unquestioningly enjoyed in the media and even the medical profession. We will talk to one of Australia's leading reporters on what's happening, and we will catch up with the lefty love-in between the adored Malaysian-born Australian singer Kamal and his good friend Philip Adams from the ABC tonight on The Fred Paul Show. Well, here is something you will rarely hear a politician say. We need to burn more fossil fuels. But in fact, the moral case for doing so is irrefutable. Fossil fuels are currently the only way to power our economy. Nuclear energy could in the future replace coal, oil and gas, but even if we started building nuclear plants today, they would not be ready for a decade or so. Dispatchable energy to build things and power our homes is important because this reduces the amount of hard labor we must perform to survive and enjoy life. And the less hard labor we do, the freer we are to use our brains to solve whatever problems we face, thereby creating more free time, and so on. This cycle is what was once called progress. This is an irony that is lost on the left. Many of who live such privileged lives that they have time to glue themselves to roads or art gallery walls, never stopping to realize that if it weren't for the conveniences provided by the fossil fuel industries, they would instead be so busy scratching around in the dirt looking for berries to eat that they wouldn't have time to worry about what temperature the planet will be in 2030. Environmentalists might think they are rejecting industrialization by riding pushbikes and drinking almond milk lattes, but they don't realize the almonds could not have been grown without fertilizer made using natural gas, or that almost every single thing in the hospital they visit after falling off their bike is a byproduct of crude oil. The arguments against fossil fuels, meanwhile, are fatuous. As Alex Epstein said in his bestseller, Fossil Fuels, last year, green catastrophists never consider the potential benefits of increased use of fossil fuels. The most obvious one is that CO2, carbon dioxide, accelerates plant growth, which is at the basis of all life on Earth. But they also enable us to make the planet more productive and safer. This is the most fundamental moral case of them all. Fossil fuels have for decades been helping billions of people lift themselves out of poverty, but billions more could still use them. The alternatives offered by environmentalists are laughably inadequate, not just commercially, but by their own supposedly admirable environmental standards. This month, Breitbart reported that the windmills the Scottish government had installed were being kept warm in December by diesel generators that were spraying hydraulic oil across the land. Quote, turbines are regularly offline due to faults where they are taking energy from the grid rather than producing it, a whistleblower said. Last week, The Economist, one of the world's most ardent supporters of renewable technology, said the transition to renewables had been mugged by reality. Some renewable providers are now rethinking their investments altogether because energy projects are becoming less attractive. Price caps and various taxes, together with rising costs, are putting them off. In other words, coal, oil, and gas are cheaper. Who knew? But don't tell that to Australian Treasurer Jim Chalmers. Good climate change policy is good economic policy. And that's because we understand uh, that the future of this economy will be increasingly powered by cleaner, cheaper, more reliable and increasingly renewable energy. We understand that. And we also understand that for too long in this country the opportunities of an economy powered by that cleaner and cheaper energy have gone begging. Author, Alex Epstein says that most environmental sentiment is based on what he calls the delicate nurturer theory. This is quote, the assumption that earth absent human impact exists in an optimal nurturing delicate balance that is stable, sufficient, and safe as we can hope to expect. You don't need to make too many leaps from there to arrive at the idea that humans are a danger to themselves and the best way to save humanity is to have as few of them as possible. The politicians who espouse this anti-human rubbish these days barely bother to conceal their disregard for the ordinary people who pay for their stupid ideas. Without doubt, the stupidest idea of recent times was the Snowy 2.0 scheme, dreamed up by former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull in 2017. As Energy Executive Ted Woodley said in an opinion piece in The Australian Today, the scheme was meant to cost $2 billion and be finished two years ago. Instead, it's on target to cost $20 billion and unlikely to be completed this year, or this decade, I should say. Its own modeling has found it will force the cost of energy up, not down. Well, that's hardly surprising. The scheme you see is designed to use solar power during the day to pump water uphill, then release it into hydro turbines at night when demand for energy increases. The the potential for something so complex and convoluted to provide cheap energy was always going to be slim. Woodley concluded, quote, Snowy 2.0 never stacked up economically, technically, or environmentally, and its gargantuan cost and environmental impacts cannot be justified for, for providing occasional long duration storage. It will never pay for itself. There are better alternatives. Well, there sure are. Coal, oil, and gas spring to mind. So why did Turnbull want want the nation to build it in the first place? Well, it was to reduce emissions of carbon dioxide, or as Epstein would say, avoid upsetting our delicate nurturer. This anti-humanism is mostly confined to people in cities. Earlier, I spoke to Daniel Wild of the Institute of Public Affairs to find out how the green dreams of urban politicians are going down in the bush. Now I've got the Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs, Daniel Wild on the line from Tamworth. Daniel and other IPA staff are touring Northeast New South Wales to talk to the people who have been possibly forgotten by the power brokers in faraway Macquarie Street in Sydney. Daniel, welcome.
2: Fred, great to be with you.
1: Daniel, there is a state election due in a little over four weeks. Have you bumped into New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet or his opposition counterpart Chris Minns on the campaign trail up there?
2: Uh, Look, not yet, Fred. And uh, that's one of the issues we have is uh, the inner city politicians, uh, political class, bureaucracy and media elites uh, are not out here on the ground in regional (laughs) and rural New South Wales and the reality is that, you know, the food that's uh, on the plates and the tables, uh, uh, the energy that's being produced to keep the lights on, to keep our industry going, all of that comes out of uh, regional Australia and uh, places like the Upper Hunter and Muzzlebrook uh, are a key part of the country, yet uh, so many of our political and corporate leaders uh, are happy to ignore uh, this part of the world. And that's why we're here, is to communicate our research on the future of regional New South Wales uh, and also to listen to locals about the conditions on the ground.
1: Well, the, oh, the the issue that seems to preoccupy this election like nearly every election in Australia these days is energy, and on this occasion I think it's being fought by two sides who are promising to destroy our energy infrastructure quicker than their opponents. How's that how's that idea going down among the people of Tamworth?
2: Well, look, not well. And the key feedback we're getting from locals is that they're not being consulted on these issues and that their concerns are not being listened to. Uh, As you rightly identify, both the coalition and Labor uh, have very similar energy policies. They've both committed to a a net zero by 2050 policy at the state level. And so voters really don't have much of a choice. And that's the issue that we're hearing here is um, there's a lack of choice, a lack of consultation. And uh, there's concerns about the future of, of jobs in the region because you know, coal, uh, for example, and the mining sector more generally is one of the highest paid sectors of the economy. It pays double uh, the economy wide average, about 90 percent of jobs in mining are full time compared to just two thirds of jobs uh, around the economy as a whole. So the jobs that are getting lost here are not getting replaced by equivalent or better jobs. Uh, And once those jobs go, so many of the communities here, you know, in Tamworth, in Armandale, in Muzzlebrook, in Gunnedoa, uh those communities risk being destroyed as well.
1: How nervous are people up there? Are you seeing the effects of these job losses already?
2: Look, we are, there's a palpable fear in these uh, communities about what's gonna happen when uh, these industries shut down and the coal mines shut down without a plan to replace them. You know, this is the issue. We're told about wind power and solar panels and how all of these new green jobs are gonna come. Uh, but that's just not the case. You know What our previous research has shown is that for every one job created in the renewable sector over the past decade, five jobs in the manufacturing sector have been destroyed. So these new green jobs are largely a myth. What we also know is that uh, if you're looking at a typical solar farm, for example, there's only about 300 to 350 jobs. Most of those jobs are in the installation phase, which only lasts about 12 to 18 months, Thereafter, it's the maintenance phase where there's only about 30 or 40 jobs that are ongoing. So you cannot uh, have a sustainable base for a local economy uh, based on such uh, small numbers uh, and such uh, you know, low return projects. I
1: mentioned earlier in the show that almost all Australian politicians are fully signed up to the idea that the use of fossil fuels is destroying the planet when in fact, Dan, it enables humans to flourish, living longer, happier, healthier lives. Everything we do, every part of our, of our wealthy, prosperous life is somehow can somehow be traced back to oil products. I mean, even the stuff that we use in hospitals is essentially made from oil products. So, I mean, these are the things that keep us alive, not only just keep our industries going, Now, that's a a, a dichotomy or two ways of looking at the world, Dan. Either we are destroying the planet or we are using fossil fuels to enrich ourselves and make our lives happier and longer. Now, I've already said which side politicians fall on this debate, but the people of Tamworth, where do they fit? Where do they sit on this debate?
2: Well, you've hit the nail on the head, Fred. The um, anti-sort of coal and gas and uh, fossil fuel movement is uh, very much an anti-anti-human flourishing movement. As you identify, basically, low-cost, reliable energy is the lifeblood of everything we have in our advanced 21st-century economy and society. It's also formed the basis of living, uh, lifting millions and millions of people out of poverty. You know, literally uh, giving the gift of light to Indians in remote villages uh, so they can go to school and enjoy the basics that we take for granted every single day. And it's just not communicated, especially to young Australians at schools, uh, that, you know, as you rightly identified, almost everything that we have uh, comes in one way, shape or form from uh, coal or gas or oil. You know, the other part of the debate that the political class doesn't seem to want to have is nuclear. You know, if you want to have low emissions, if that's, you know, the main focus of what you think policy should be on, Then you've got to at least have a debate about nuclear policy. Look, it's been good that the coalition at the federal level at least has pushed the boat out a little bit, but we need to have more leadership on this issue. Uh, France, for example, has 70% of its energy from nuclear. It's used in the US, the UK, Canada. Um, What we're doing at the moment is shutting down our coal and gas without any plan of having a replaceable uh, baseload power. And as I say, there's a palpable fear in these local communities about what that means for their future.
1: Well they're trying to uh, they're trying to um, sugar the sugar a little bit sugarcoat it a little bit by putting on proposing a 400 megawatt wind farm at a place called Hills of Gold just near Tamworth the Tamworth council opposes it as do many residents yesterday labor le- labor leader Chris Minns promised to create a new energy security corporation and pump a billion dollars into it to invest in renewable technology do the, do the locals up there fall for any of this stuff, Daniel?
2: Look, no, they don't. They see through it. Uh, but the problem is that they're lacking any tangible power to be able to do anything about it. Um, these wind projects, of which you've mentioned one of them, a lot of them are taking place on very fertile, high-quality agricultural land uh, that is producing high-quality grain or high-quality uh, grass-fed cattle, uh, which is you know, used here but also exported around the world, which is a critical source of export revenue, which goes then to reinvest in local communities with schools, roads and hospitals. All of that is being put at risk. And the other issue is it's really dividing the community here. Uh, Many are opposed to the issue. Uh, Many are opposed to the development of these wind uh, projects on this high quality agricultural land. But as you say, uh, the Labor Party here is committed to Uh, forging ahead with that uh, policy and there's not really a lot of pushback from the other side of politics as well so this gets back to the fundamental issue of why we're here is to listen to concerns of locals communicate our research and actually give them a voice in the debate that they're lacking in the inner cities
1: yeah well i mean they get a voice at the ipa but they don't get one at the ballot box really do they what are the other are there any locals coming up with any solutions any any alternative to liberal and labor up there
2: Look, there is a range of uh, candidates out here, uh, third parties. You've got a lot of independents, of course, One Nation, as well as another alternative uh, that's in these parts. We have the Shooters and Fishers who, uh, you know, electorally speaking did quite well for a while, but then, uh, you know, disintegrated as a, as a party organisation. So, look, at the end of the day, there's not a lot of choice. Uh, you've got to go basically one of the two major parties in terms of having a, a preferential compulsory voting system. Uh, look, a lot of people are looking at the upper house and seeing uh, whether there's an opportunity for a third party to be able to make gains in the upper house, which is really the only outlet. Um, look, otherwise it's, um, it's going to have to be a grassroots movement to try and communicate the problems that are here. But like I say, it's, it's parts here, like the Upper Hunter and New England part of uh, New South Wales that are so critical to our national prosperity uh, with the mining and with the agriculture. And we're doing a lot of immense uh, self-imposed, self-sabotage Uh, on our national future and prosperity with these short-sighted net zero policies and wind farms on, you know, prime agricultural land.
1: Not just just our prosperity, but our culture. You're standing in front of the big guitar, Daniel. I mean, if they're going to to mess with places like Tamworth, is nothing sacred?
2: Well, you make a very important point and it's not just the economy, but it's the way of life uh, that is lived here in communities like Tamworth, Um, the traditional Australian life based on, you know, hard work, reward for effort, uh, having a fair go, uh, those are the values that are lived here uh, and less so in the inner city metropolitan areas, you know, and this gets to a much bigger point, which is policies like, you know, net zero and other climate policies, it's not the inner city elite who pay the price. Uh, It's not, you know, Balmain, it's not Turak. it's not Brisbane. They're not incurring the cost of these policies. It's those in the regions in rural Australia who don't have a voice, uh, but are incurring the major costs in terms of lost jobs uh, and diminished prospects for their communities.
1: Yeah, I like the fact that the IPA gets out amongst the communities, at the rural and regional communities. As it happens, I've just come back from Horsham in, in rural Victoria, uh, where I was on the weekend. And like you, I noticed such a distinct contrast to the city. One of the things you notice in country towns is, is that the culture and and the the sort of family and community feeling is centuries deep you know you there are people there who who are proud to have to uh, to be fifth generation locals and and so on and you know there are pubs that have been in the same hands for for generations and so on i mean it it is as you say it's a it's a travesty that that city peop, that politicians in the city are making decisions that deeply affect the prosperity of these areas because they have probably deeper cultural roots than some of the cities have.
2: Yeah, look, that's exactly right. And and what you get out here is a sense of uh, not only pride in the local community, uh, but pride in our nation, uh, which is something that is missing in the cities. You know, no one out here is ashamed to be Australian. You know, no one is ashamed of their culture or our way of life. And, you know, it's something that's missing when we look at the schools what children are taught in our schools, a very negative self-hate view uh, of our national culture and our history. Um, There's a a sharp distinction, as you say, between the inner cities uh, and the rural and also the outer suburban areas as well, which are largely impervious to the incursions of the inner city elite. But of course, it is those inner city elites that are driving the national conversation and agenda. And it's really important that uh, people out here have a voice in the debate.
1: Yeah, and while the inner city drives the debate, the regions you know, feed the nation. I mean, I know, which, I know which, uh, which part of the country is probably more important to the rest of us.
2: Look, that's exactly right. And we, you know, we distinguish between the talking class and the doing class. Uh, the talking class, you know, the, the laptop class, if you like, uh, can sit at home in their comfortable houses, thanks to all the work that goes on in regional parts of, of the country. And they don't have a, an understanding. Look, food doesn't come from the supermarket you know, it comes from a farm somewhere. Electricity doesn't come from a light switch. It comes from gas or coal, which is then transmitted through, you know, a fairly sophisticated national energy market. Uh, but this understanding simply is not there. And there's a very negative, almost obnoxious view coming out of the, the inner cities uh, towards regional Australians. And look, the real risk is that once these communities start to shut down, uh, you then end up having this migration of more people into the inner cities, which then just, you know, creates further problems. But the other point I just want to make is, look, there is so much opportunity out here. We just need our leaders in Canberra and in Brisbane and in Sydney and in Melbourne to back in the regions to get behind it uh, rather than imposing these damaging uh, short-sighted policies.
1: Brilliantly said, Daniel. And good on you and the IPA for giving the uh, regional Australians hard-working, honest and decent regional Australians a voice. Uh, We look forward to speaking to you again on this road trip. Thanks for your time.
2: Lovely. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Fred.
1: That's Daniel Wild, the Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs on the line from Tamworth. Well, here's a statement from the New South Wales government that will confuse many Australians. Quote, all people have a right to participate fully in society without experiences of stigma or discrimination, unquote. This is from a policy document released last March and signed off by the then state health minister, Brad Hazard. By all people, Hazard was not referring to those who at the time were refusing to take the COVID vaccine. No, sir. Hazard said at the time it was quote, sensible to exclude the unvaccinated from society and at one stage even contemplated making them pay for state-funded medical care should they come down with COVID. As we now know, those people who held out against the experimental vaccine were being justifiably prudent. The vaccines neither stopped transmission nor reduced the severity of the virus. Worse, they caused serious heart conditions and death, and their ultimate long-term effects are still not known although they did make billions of dollars in profits for the global pharmaceutical companies. So who was Health Minister Hazard referring to when he said all people have a right to participate in society without stigma or discrimination? Well, that would be the group of people whose right to participate in society has not only been thoroughly accepted for decades, it's being positively enforced. Last week, News Corp threw its media weight behind the gay lobby when when the Christian owner of a printing franchise shop politely declined to print flyers for an event that will be part of World Pride, the global gay jamboree that is taking over Sydney for the next two weeks. The Daily Telegraph labelled it gay hate, which of course it was not. It was simply a small business owner politely declining to print something that her Christian beliefs deemed inappropriate. It's curious that the supposed victims of these carefully targeted disagreements don't simply go across the road to a more gay-friendly franchise, or better still, try their luck at a printing shop owned by a follower of the religion known for its violent reaction to homosexuality. Such is the state of freedom in Western liberal democracies these days. The people who died defending those freedoms would scratch their heads at the absolute dog's breakfast we've made of their hard-fought legacy. Adults are not allowed to make informed decisions about their own health, and small business owners are vilified for adhering to religious beliefs that don't impinge on anyone's human rights. But that's not the worst of it. Over the past decade, a new freedom has acquired sanctified status, the right to be any gender you like, even if, or especially if, according to some people, you are still legally only a child. As Hazard's policy from last year pointed out, children weren't being provided enough freedom to change their gender should they feel so inclined. The policy document said the government was not providing enough support for quote, families of transgender and gender diverse children and young people, and that new forms of care for these confused children needed to be developed. As if there wasn't enough care for them already. In Victoria, for example, schools can provide transgender services many of which are irreversible to a child against the wishes or even knowledge of the parents. But the heels are coming off the stilettos of the transgender lobby, which now finds itself hobbling in ways that were unpredicted even six months ago. Last month, a former case manager at the Washington University Transgender Center at the St. Louis Children's Hospital in Missouri wrote to the state's attorney general blowing the whistle on the clinic's alleged abuse of children. She said, quote, I have decided to come forward to report serious concerns I have about the medical care being provided by the center causing harm to patients and their families. This includes the rapid medicalization of children, poor assessment of mental health concerns prior to provision of gender altering treatment, medicalization of children without prior and adequate therapeutic treatment, lack of appropriate informed written consent of parents and youth, and actual permanent and irreversible harm and injury caused by the medical treatment provided at the centre. The woman who made those allegations, Jamie Reed, describes herself as progressive, which must be right because you would have to be a woke warrior to work at a place like that. The Attorney General, Andrew Bailey, is a Republican, but that didn't bother Reid. She said, quote, the safety of children should not be a matter for our culture wars. Andrew Bailey responded by launching an investigation to, quote, make sure children are not harmed by individuals who may be more concerned with a radical social agenda, than the health of children. We could probably use something like that investigation here. The Tavistock clinic in London is also in trouble and after 34 years of operation is now being shut down. A report last year found that Tavistock staff were pressured to adopt a quote, affirmative and unquestioning approach, unquote, to children and young people reporting feelings of gender dysphoria. The effects of the puberty blockers they were prescribed, we are now learning, were not as benign as they sound, as my next guest will explain in a minute. Far from the blockers giving kids time to reconsider their true identity, they almost always led to the next stage, which was cross-sex hormones testosterone for girls and estrogen for boys, the effects of which are also irreversible and along with the mastectomies and various other surgical operations on genitals, often profoundly regretted. A class action lawsuit is being launched against Tavistock. The law firm behind it says, quote, some some children and young people have been prescribed hormonal treatments before it was established that this was the appropriate treatment for them. And studies suggest that a number of children who attended the clinic later regretted the, regretted the decision and subsequently wished to detransition. Well, no wonder those staff who collaborated in all this are now claiming they were pressured to do so. They may yet find themselves named as defendants. One of the world's most prominent transgender proponents has also suddenly discovered a more prudent wardrobe than the one he is most famously associated with. In June last year, Sam Brinton proudly proclaimed himself to be the first openly gender-fluid leader in the United States government. Officially, his job was to oversee the disposable disposal of nuclear waste but unofficially he was one of the shiniest symbols of the unrestrained wokeness of the Biden administration. Well, not anymore. His employment was terminated in December and last week he faced court in Minnesota charged with stealing women's luggage from airports for which he could serve five years in jail. After months of pretentiously and provocatively parading around in women's dresses, and fronted court in a conventionally cut men's suit. Even the New York Times, having consistently encouraged this often cruel hoax on children, is now finally having second thoughts. Its recent reporting drew criticism from some of the world's leading gay activists, the kind of writers who normally feel right at home at the New York Times. An open letter to the paper signed by 200 activists, including Australia's own Hannah Gadsby, accused the paper of quote, irresponsible biased coverage of transgender people. It went on, the Times has repeatedly platformed cisgender, that is non-transgender, people spreading inaccurate and harmful misinformation about transgender people and issues. This is damaging to the paper's credibility and it is damaging to all LGBTQ people, especially our youth who say debates about trans equality negatively impact their mental health, which is a contributing factor to the high suicide rates for LGBT youth." Unquote. To its credit, the New York Times responded to this shot across the bow by publishing an opinion piece defending J.K. Rowling, the, the British author whose crime, according to the trans lobby, is to outrageously object to men sharing women's changing rooms. One of her detractors said she, said she wanted to slit Rowling's throat. Charming. The tide is turning, albeit slowly. An investigation of 79 former patients at the children's patients at the Children's Hospital at Westmead in Sydney has now cast serious doubt about the long-term benefits of medications and surgery to transitioning children. And The Weekend Australian editorialized on Saturday, quote, evidence suggests that complex psychological forces not related to gender may be at play. You don't say. This issue is not about ideological viewpoints on gender. It is about the right of young people to receive proper medical care or no medical care at all. As we saw during COVID, the medical industry is often more interested in making a profit than the well-being of patients. 20th century German-American psychoanalyst Erik Erikson, the man who coined the phrase identity crisis, said adolescence is the period when it is natural to question who you are and what your role in the world should be. It's tough enough for kids living in a stable, loving family within a culture where certain principles are immutable. But the breakdown of the family unit, the lack of decent adult role models of either gender, and the relentlessly repeated message from teachers, politicians, and even parents that humanity has at best a decade or so left on this planet before we all fry to death combined to combined to compound the confusion and despair kids feel during this delicate phase. No wonder some of them find their way to places like the Tavistock Clinic or the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, seeking solutions to anxieties they never asked for. If the tide is turning on this grotesque distortion of Western medicine, good but there is one voice that is missing from those who are bravely standing up against it all. Right now, Sydney has been taken over by the LGBTQI crowd for world pride. The city is awash with rainbow colors, supposedly encouraging gay people to not be so shy about their sexuality. As if that's necessary anymore but what they are shy about is defending teenagers from medical practitioners and cultural zealots who are encouraging them to make drastic permanent decisions that they might later regret. It would be nice if one or two of them could drag themselves away from celebrating World Pride in Sydney over the next two weeks to tell some of our most troubled teenagers that no matter how mixed up they feel, there is no adolescent trauma serious enough to require drastic, irreversible, life-changing medicines and surgery. Now, let's bring in one journalist who has been covering this issue for years, firstly in the Australian newspaper and since late last year from his own Substack account called Gender Clinic News, journalist Bernard Lane. Bernard, welcome to the show.
0: Hello, Fred. Thank you.
1: Firstly, Bernard, we are seeing the opposition to transgender medication and surgery gaining traction overseas. Can you give us a, a little glimpse of where the debate is, particularly in the UK, the US and how Australia compares now?
0: OK, well, in in the UK, it centres around the Tavistock Gender Clinic. Um, it is the largest youth gender clinic in the world. Uh, And what has happened there is that since about 2018, there's been detailed investigative journalism. Uh, There's been an official inquiry uh, and also litigation. And what's happening right now in relation to the Tavistock is that one of the journalists who's done uh, this investigative work on the Tavistock, Hannah Barnes from the BBC, has published a book about the crisis it's the first book about this crisis at the tavistock uh, that book is generating a lot of media coverage in the uk and also here in australia on the australian newspaper what's happening in the states is that oh sorry before, before you move of... on
1: before you move on that that uh, that book is called time to think if i'm not mistaken and it has it even been published i mean you're saying it's generating a lot of debate I, i'm not sure it's even available yet is
0: it well, I've, I've heard two different publication dates for it, but I mean, there's, a, there's been a lot of um, coverage by journalists who've had advanced copies uh, and, and, you know, a fair bit of quoting from the book itself. Um, if it's not available now, it should be available on the 23rd, I think, at the latest. Um, originally, I think that you can probably edit all this out, but um, originally I think it was to be published on February 16, but. In um, the UK papers, uh, The Times, The Sunday Times, The Guardian, um, also the BBC, there's very extensive coverage of the book, interviews with Hannah Barnes, uh, news reporting, uh, for and example. And What, what so sort of revelations
1: think- are they making? I mean, the, the, the last I know, there were, as far as I know, in 2020, there were roughly 2,700 kids went through the Tavistock Clinic. The majority of them, if I'm not mistaken, uh, were given uh, puberty blockers, which invariably practice tells us leads to transgender hormones and then sometimes onto uh, surgery. So what sort of is that a sort of fair summation of what was happening at Tavistock and what new revelations are from this coming from this
0: book? Well, Fred, I think there's still uncertainty about exactly what percentage of kids who were referred to the Tavistock went down the medical path, starting with puberty blockers. Um, And that's, believe it or not, still has not been clarified. But the the thrust of the Hannah Barnes book is that this clinic became a sort of a one-size-fits-all place and large numbers of kids with all sorts of different complex problems, as well as gender issues, were put on the medical path, starting with puberty blockers. And as you say, the evidence is that almost all the kids who start on puberty blockers go on to the irreversible opposite sex hormones, which they're supposed to be taking for life. And I guess, you know, one of the messages of Hannah Barnes book is that once the gender issue arose, that's what everyone focused on. The other problems, and there were many of them for these kids, such as autism, ADHD, depression, anxiety, um, also sometimes, uh, you know, a frustrated or awkward same-sex attraction, all those other issues seemed to be put on hold. Uh, you know, that those other issues were not dealt with or not treated, and it's possible that what looked like gender distress might, in fact, have been distress driven by those other underlying untreated causes. So if these kids went down the transmedical path, it's not necessarily going to make them all feel all that much better in the long run. Um, Initially, of course, there's euphoria. Um, They've got the the medication they wanted. They've read about it all, all online. You know, friends and acquaintances are doing the same thing. There's a message that you know, that everything improves dramatically once you embrace your trans identity, once you go down the medical path. But, you know, it's still very early days and there may be substantial regret ahead.
1: Well, there was a a report recently, which you've covered uh, extensively, that found that the staff were claiming that they were pressured to instinctively or reflexively pursue the trans medication and surgery procedures. But I think those staff are, uh, are, you know, I mean, of course they're gonna say they're being pressured because there's quite a significant um, class action lawsuit out against Tavistock now, isn't there? What's the state of play with that?
0: Well, the the pressure that the staff felt, and it wasn't just at the Tavistock, it was elsewhere in the the National Health Service, the pressure was to affirm uncritically. So, excuse me, So when a child presented um, as transgender uh, and said they had this distress in their bodies, instead of um, just noting that in a neutral way and starting to explore what's going on, looking at the kid holistically, trying to work out what's the basis for it, instead of doing that, the pressure and the expectation was that you would immediately affirm the transgender identity, start using the opposite sex name, start using the pronouns. Um, And I guess the point again is that that may lead to false positives, kids who think they're trans and who um, are desperate for these medical treatments, but in the long run, it's not really going to help them. Um, As for the litigation, there was a law firm, I think an international law firm, which announced that it was looking at a class action against the Tavistock um, over puberty blockers, but, um, we haven't really heard anything more about that class action. They had estimated that there might be a certain number of families who would sign up. Whether or not those families have actually signed up, we just don't know. I mean, I've contacted this law firm a couple of times and there's just no reply.
1: Right. Okay. So let's move over to the US. There was a recently a, uh, a whistleblower in Missouri. Um, what's the state of play with that?
0: That's a big deal. And uh, this story was broken, not by the mainstream media, but by a new media outfit called the Free Press, which is run by ex New York Times opinion writer, Barry Weiss. And the story that they had was written in the first person um, by the gender clinic whistleblower, Jamie Reed. she's a Missouri woman, describes herself as queer, uh, to the left of Bernie Sanders politically. She's married to a trans man, she was extremely enthusiastic about these trans medical treatments initially, but over a number of years, she became extremely um, disturbed about what she was seeing at that clinic. There appeared to be no careful assessment of the kids that they were giving the irreversible opposite sex hormones to. The gender clinicians appeared to be lying, uh, you know, in public and you know, to the state legislature about not referring minors for surgery, which, in fact, they were doing, according to Jamie Reed, um, There was no data being collected. Um, kids who had profound and serious mental health problems were assessed as eligible for physical transition and for the opposite sex hormones. You know, in a number of cases, Jamie Reed, when she saw just how disturbed these kids were, she thought, well, they they won't transition that kid. They won't give that kid hormones. Can't possibly, that kid can't possibly be in a state of mind to give informed consent. And yet, it kept on happening. And uh, Jamie Reed was trying repeatedly to make her concerns felt within the clinic. And the message was, well, if you don't like the way we operate, you should go. And so she then approached uh, Barry Weiss's Free Press um, outfit and. The story has had a huge impact in the states uh, I mean just will it lead to criminal charges do you think Well the Attorney General in Missouri has launched an investigation um, S- Senator Josh Hawley the you know the federal, federal Republican has launched an investigation. there's suggestion that uh, to the extent that some of these hormones are federally subsidized there's suggestion that it could be fraud. Um, and I suppose this has to do with the argument that um, there isn't a good evidence base for these medications and they are not able to do what they claim to do.
1: Right. So let's bring it back to Australia then. There was recently a study published by doctors at the Children's Hospital at Westmead in Sydney that cast some doubt on puberty
0: blockers. Is that right? What, what's happening there? Yes. Well, these are the, the most senior uh, clinicians and researchers in the area of gender dysphoria, this bodily distress that young people have, um, and they are based at Westmead Children's Hospital. Uh, they also operate out of the University of Sydney. Um, recently they published the third uh, paper in a series and their studies are looking holistically at the kids who turn up at Westmead with their minds already made up, made up that they're trans. They already have decided that they want puberty blockers. Often their families are thoroughly convinced that this is you know, this is what has to be done and should be done straight away. And the clinicians and researchers became worried because they started to realize that these families and the kids had a whole host of other problems, psychiatric trauma, abuse, loss of parents, all sorts of red flags telling you that you really want to carefully explore what's going on here and not put these kids on a, you know, a medical conveyor belt.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, those... well, I mean, the first, the first stop on that conveyor belt is the puberty blockers. Now, you've found that, well, as researchers, it's now quite conclusive among researchers that the puberty blockers do cause permanent, have permanent effects. What are they?
0: Well, I guess it it depends how you express it, but um, the least contentious stuff is that the puberty blockers, um, they interfere with the normal rapid increase in bone density in adolescents, and the fear is that down the track these kids may be extremely high risk for osteoporosis. Um, There are potential... Psychological effects, uh, including low mood depression, puberty blockers. Um, there may be some effects uh, to do with diabetes-like symptoms or, you know, preliminary or early problems of that kind, metabolic syndrome. Um, but there are just many unknowns about puberty blockers. I mean... But the one
1: thing that the, the their proponents hmm. claim consistently is that putting trans kids on this, as you call it, a conveyor belt, reduces their likelihood of suicide. Is that true?
0: There's no direct evidence for that. Um, there's low quality, you know, online anonymous survey research suggesting that kids who identify as trans have a, an elevated risk of suicide attempts. But as I say, that's low quality. Data. Um, the clinicians I've spoke to think that these kids diagnosed with gender dysphoria they probably have a they do have an elevated suicide risk compared to the general population, but it's probably similar suicide risk to kids their age with depression or anxiety who get referred to a mental health clinic. And because these kids with gender dysphoria typically often also have depression, anxiety, autism all of which can increase your suicide risk. There's no it, it's simply not clear that genita dysphoria in and of itself is the key suicide risk. Uh, there's no evidence, no good evidence also, that if you put these kids on the medical path, that the suicide risk associated with genita dysphoria will fade away. On the it's contrary just, just Bernard
1: but on the contrary, Bernard, there are you and I have both seen videos or testimonies of kids who are now regretting this process and want to detransition, of all the people I've seen, and I'm not an, ex- an expert in this field, I have to say, but of all the people I've seen involved in this entire phenomenon, they are probably the highest candidates, most likely candidates for suicide because they've made this this enormous and, in some cases, profoundly regrettable decision at the tender age of 16, with their life, whole life ahead of them.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly true that one of the big problems is the lack of informed um, psychological and social support for detransitioners. You know, those are, these are young people who... Often were totally immersed in trans world. All their friends were, you know, in that in that world. Once they detransition, they tend to be rejected. They lose their friends, um, and as you say, they they suffer um, a lot of sense of remorse. Um, they, you know, feel it's a terrible mistake that they've made. Uh, they need a lot of help. Hmm.
1: Well, Bernard, figures are hard to come by, but uh, do you have any, uh, any idea how many kids are being treated for this condition in Australia at the moment?
0: No, but there's some freedom of information data from the three large children's hospital gender clinics. I mean, just one indication of how the, you know, this explosive growth in this condition, which is what's worrying a lot of people, is that the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, the largest and most influential gender clinic, had just 18 new referrals in 2012. In 2021, they had 821 new referrals. So from 18 in 2012 to 821 in 2021.
1: And that's Melbourne, that's Uh, Australia's biggest clinic, correct?
0: Yes, that's right. And, and those these are those all are patients new... under 18? Yes, they would be. Um, yes, they are under 18. Because I think at age 17, the clinic starts to transition them to the adult clinic.
1: So, And w- what are the legal requirements along the way? The Family Court is or was involved at some stage, wasn't it?
0: That's right. It used to be the case that any under 18 trans medical interventions puberty blockers, opposite sex hormones or surgery. Um, Even if the doctors and the parents agreed that the kid was competent to give informed consent, they had to go to the family court and get approval. And the Royal Children's Hospital and various trans lobby groups argued that that was discriminatory, uh, that non-trans people didn't have to go to court for treatment. And so a series of, you know, there are a number of test cases run. And the effect of that is that the Family Court now does not get involved unless there's a dispute between the parents or between the parents and the doctors about whether the kid really has dysphoria, whether the treatment is the right one, the treatment being recommended um, and whether the kid has the capacity to give informed consent.
1: Well, technically, that can't possibly be true. I mean, the kid is under 18, making a life-altering medical decision, even if the doctors who are not acting according to the Hippocratic Oath, in my opinion, even if the doctors do think that this is the right course of action, and the parents of all people agree, so then the entire process can be conducted without anybody else knowing. Is that correct?
0: Well, it's true that that the – sorry, Fred, I just had to think about this. Um, I mean, it's it's true that there are situations where kids under 18 are considered competent to authorise their own medical treatment. You know, an emergency appendectomy, maybe they can't get in contact with the parents' Um, the kid approves it and people would find that understandable. Um, But the situation here is that you're dealing with a condition about which the medical profession is still divided. What is its nature? It's not exactly clear. There's no objective test for dysphoria, and the evidence base for the treatments is extremely poor. Um, And there's... You know, we were talking about those huge surges in patient numbers. Um, You know, that that may suggest that what is driving this is social contagion over social media networks and through school peer groups. So when you you put those elements together, plus the the effect of these medical treatments, which, you know, the hormonal treatments can leave the children infertile, uh, can impair future sexual function, Um, surgery of course is irreversible, Um, you put all those elements together and I think a lot of people would agree with you and say that kids under 18 especially and and the other element too is that a lot of these kids have depression and anxiety and and yet they're still supposed to to go down this pathway. So there are are really
1: there really is no safety net for kids caught in this that if they find a doctor who agrees with them and their parents out of sheer desperation agree then they can quite, quite legally, and and uh, with the full endorsement of the doctors involved, travel down this path at the tender age of sixteen or seventeen. That, I find that utterly unacceptable, Bernard. How is this going to end? When, when will? Is there any political will, or is there any? Are there any researchers emerging to say, or or medical practitioners emerging to say, actually, this is all a bit dubious and we are ruining kids' lives?
0: There are a number of groups that have sprung up, uh, which bring together medical practitioners, other health professionals who are very worried about this. One example is the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. It's an international group. It does have Australian members. Um, there's various groups representing detransitioners who are, who are putting out warnings uh, about what's going on. Um, unfortunately, most of the large medical organisations, medical societies, health professional societies, um, they either have been captured ideologically in this area or they just appear too timid to really um, push this cause and explain why there needs to be a pause, why there needs to be proper inquiry. And, and meanwhile, yeah,
1: carry on, go on.
0: The closest we've come to, to it so far is the, the College of Psychiatrists in Australia and New Zealand, which did do a review of all the evidence and now has a more cautious policy. But they're not campaigning to, um, for example, you know, why, why isn't there a, a, a group like the College of Psychiatry going to the Federal Health Minister and, and pushing their concerns.
1: Indeed, what's the Federal Health Minister himself doing?
0: Well, I don't know. Um, I don't know what, to what extent he's aware of the issue. I mean, I, I think he reads the Australian newspaper, I suspect well, he does. Well, one would and hope
1: he does, and one would hope he's. this is in his brief. I mean, kids' lives, we, you know, we, you and I both know, Bernard, we we live in very strange times. There's a lot of anxiety among kids, understandably. They're brought up to think that the world's going to end and there's a lot of family breakup and a lot of uncertainty. It's It's not a surprise that kids are drawn to this because – It would would in some ways be seen as a panacea to all sorts of problems that aren't of their making. But anyway, Bernard, look, we've run out of time and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Let's keep talking about this and you keep working on it because your work in this field is important and groundbreaking. So thank you for your time, Bernard. Thanks,
0: Fred.
1: That's Bernard Lane and you can catch all of his reporting on this subject at his Substack account, Gender Clinic News. And before I go, here is another reason why it pays to not be a lefty. Even when you get in a spat with a fellow lefty and a lefty media organization negotiates a truce, things will somehow still struggle to be nice again because, you know, this is lefties we're talking about here. This particular instance begins with ABC royalty, Philip Adams, making a racist remark about Kamal, the much-loved Malaysian-born Australian singer. In December, he posted a tweet, which has since been deleted, saying of Kamal's friendship with cricketer Don Bradman, quote, "'Clearly, Kamal, he made you an honorary white.'" whereas one of the most towering political figures of the 20th century, Nelson Mandela, was deemed unworthy of Bradman's approval, In fact, Bradman and Mandela enjoyed a mutually admiring correspondence late in life, and Bradman once sent his friend a cricket bat inscribed with the message to Nelson Mandela in recognition of a great unfinished innings, Don Bradman. That aside, Adams was caught at first slip by Kamal, who posted, Daring to suggest that Sir Donald Bradman invited me to his home in August 1988 as a token white is disgusting at best. You may be white, but oh, your soul is black. It's ironic to note your vocabulary is excellent. Why are people so unkind? Adams claims to have handwritten an apology and posted it to Kamal in late January. Kamal says, however, it never arrived. So Adams wrote and released another gracious apology via email saying, quote, it pains me deeply that you believe I've been both unkind and cruel to you. This stems from a misunderstanding about that tweet intended as a rebuke to Bradman, not to you. I regret that my words have been misunderstood and that they have caused you unhappiness. Please accept my apology. Unquote. No way, said Kamal, describing Adams's second apology as arrogant, questioned its honesty, and called it a smokescreen. Ka- Kamal's signature sign off, Why Are People So Unkind?, seems to answer itself. It's because, Kamal, they're lefties. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. Alan Jones is up tomorrow night and Wednesday night, and I'll see you again at eight o'clock on Thursday. Good night.